Uh, if you are new or just joining us, we are continuing in our series on Mark's gospel that we began back in October of 2021. And we are in this final week of Jesus' life where he is in Jerusalem and the temperature is starting to rise between himself and the authorities there. We're in just those days before his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, and eventual resurrection. And he begins this week with a bang. I mean, it's this steady string of enacted parables where he, he goes into Jerusalem on a donkey. He curses a fig tree. He cleanses the temple. All these things that he does on, on Sunday and then on Monday, but here on from Tuesday, in the relatively quiet of Tuesday morning until Thursday night when he is betrayed in the garden, really in the Gospel of Mark is nothing but a bunch of talk. And Jesus tells these parables of judgment. He speaks in kind of cryptic, apocalyptic language. And for their part, the Judean authorities respond with these baited questions. They try to catch him in a chargeable offense. And it's, a call, it's all the calm before the storm, where all of the motives that are, are laying there dormant in every heart, they all get dragged out into the surface before the redemptive flood of grace comes in cross and resurrection, and they break into the world. And all of this stuff has been simmering since the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Mark notes back as early as chapter 3, after Jesus uh, heals on the Sabbath, that the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. And so the shadow of the cross has been there all throughout. And Mark circles back to this theme that he has brought up several times before. It's the question of Jesus' authority. And so with that question hanging in our minds, I want to invite Leslie to come and pray as we come to our scripture reading. Let us prepare our hearts to receive God's holy word to us that we might be transformed. Holy God, you passionately pursue us and our well-being. Open our minds to trust the guidance and instruction in your word. Open our hearts to trust your decisions and decrees, even when they challenge us. We turn to your word, assured your ways are loving and righteous, and work for the good of those who love you. A reading from Mark 11:27 to 12:12. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. 
A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away, empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Back in the 1960s, my dad lived in a boarding house uh, for musicians. He lived in the Watts neighborhood of L.A. Uh, and then when the riots broke out in the summer of 1965, his landlady kicked him out along with all of his musician friends. Um, my dad was like way cooler than I am. <laughs> but there was this ink in gouache portrait that uh, was hanging up in the place of the legendary sax player Charlie Parker. Um, it was some tacked up into the wall of the house. The owner of the property got it as a gift from her son, some uh, drummer who had who'd made it big. Uh, she wasn't really all that into modern stuff, and so she just kind of threw it up on the dingy wall to cover up a hole or something like that. But she knew that my dad liked it. Uh, and so as he was kind of packing up as kind of a, a consolation prize for getting booted, she asked him, do you want it? And of course he did. I mean, Charlie Parker was my dad's inspiration. The reason he got into jazz is he was kind of even retelling me the story this week. He, he was starting to light up like a kid on Christmas talking about Yardbird's technique and what it meant to mid-century bebop. And I'm like, dude, I don't even know who you are right now. <laughs> the painting went with my dad up to his new digs in Hollywood and then again to the Central Valley when he decided to settle down after quitting the gigging life. And about 20 years later, after he met and married my mom, we got a visit from uh, either an aunt or a cousin or, or someone on her side who was an art dealer down in Orange County. And she was fascinated by the painting. Uh, by then, my dad had kind of upgraded it from thumbtacks to like, you know, like one of those cheap plastic frames that you would get at that, you know, those shops in the mall back when the, you know, posters were a thing. And she asked, well, how, how did you get this? So my dad told the story, and she said, well, you need to put this in a museum-quality glass frame right away. Get it appraised. This is an original by Leroy Neiman. It's, it's worth something. So that's the story about how this little painting got into my family, a little bit of uh, family history that we, uh, we enjoy. Now, I have no idea if my dad actually ever got it appraised or if it is an original. To be honest, I'm a little skeptical if you're watching this online, mom and dad, sorry. Like, 
but here's the thing. It would be really cool if it was. Um, but, it, you know, it might just be an impressive forgery. And if that's the case, it doesn't really matter if you put it in a really nice frame. Uh, maybe, you know, we'll fool ourselves, but it doesn't change the value of the thing at all. But on the other hand, if it is authentic, it doesn't really matter where it came from. It doesn't matter if it was a disregarded and hanging up by thumbtacks up on a dingy boarding house wall. What matters is who held the brush. If it's worth anything at all, it's because of who the artist is, because there is a weight and there's a gravity attached to his name. Jesus quotes the Psalms to the scribes, the teachers of the law. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is in our eyes. And all throughout his ministry, the, the religious leaders cannot see what they are looking at when it comes to Jesus. For all the world, Jesus just appears to be like some dusty rabbi, some uncredentialed dude from the middle of nowhere. John's gospel puts it on the nose when he writes this. Jesus was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Now, Mark draws out this same theme in his gospel, but he does it more by showing than by telling. He opens with this, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And he sets up this contrast from the very start. The reader knows what the story is about. The reader knows who the story is about. But nobody in the story knows. And so there's this irony kind of moving along in the background, always simmering there beneath the surface. Jesus is a king, but he is not the kind of king that anyone is expecting. And as the story unfolds, people kind of clue in at different points in the story that Jesus is maybe many things, but he is no ordinary teacher. Faith starts to pop up in these unexpected places, a demoniac, uh, a Gentile woman, uh, a blind man on the side of the road. We know who Jesus is, but they are figuring it out as they go. And so there's this tension. And then in chapter 11, we have this collection of these three entities, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Uh, Mark puts it that way. They're kind of describing representatives of the council known as the Sanhedrin, these 71 men whose role it was to govern the life and the faith of Israel, including all of the, the temporal operations. They are the ones with authority, structural authority. They're the ones in charge. And so they ask this question that Mark has kept on a low simmer throughout the entirety of his gospel to this point. Who has given Jesus the authority to do and say the things that Jesus is doing and saying? And the word here for authority is the Greek word exousia. We've seen it pop up a couple of times. And this is the gospel's way of saying pay attention. Now, it's a kind of a tough word to translate. It's actually a combination of two Greek words. Ek, which is this idea of moving out from within and towards something, and usia, which is the word for essence or power or the inherent worth of a thing. And all throughout Mark, Jesus' exousia is the thing that left the most lasting impression on his followers. It's a thing that people noted when they heard him speak. 
It's also the thing that caused the greatest offense to his opponents. Because when he taught, he did not refer to the authority of others as was the custom of other rabbis. He didn't appeal to the teaching of the, the two great rabbis of the day, Hillel or Shammai. He spoke out of his own being as somebody who could reveal and interpret the heart of Scripture. You, you, you felt the weight the authority of his words when he spoke. You, you had this experience of coming up to him and saying, this is one who really knows reality. Like Jesus never had to ask his disciples after he taught or he preached, hey guys, how do you think that went? Right, was that okay? Should I mix it up, you know, parable of the coins or coins relatable should i oh sheep that's a good idea sheep yeah definitely we'll get the sympathy vote that way no he didn't have to do any of that jesus when he was teaching on the sabbath he didn't wonder if this was something he could do because he would claim to have authority over even the sabbath itself and so he has this authority that presses in in ways that people it was, it was further than anyone thought possible. He, he forgives sin. He, he calms storms. He binds the powers of evil and darkness. He does the things that only God can do. And so this question, it follows him. And we find it here again in chapter 11 after he rearranges the furniture in the temple. Who gave you the authority to do this? We run this joint. Who gave you the authority to do this? What right do you have to press in on our turf? But Jesus does not go about defending himself. He just simply keeps revealing who he is. And in a sense, he can't really defend himself because his exousia, his authority, it comes from who he is. It doesn't come from what he can prove himself to be. And so he just keeps on showing them. And by now, they've all heard the stories. They, they've even seen the things that he can do, but they have way too much invested in him not being the one that he claims to be. See, elites and those in power have, have long had an issue, a tenuous relationship when it comes to God and when it comes to his Messiah, Jesus, because they are a threat to the status quo. If Jesus is the authority, then they are not. If his is the way, then the program that you can subscribe to for $10 a month is not. If he is the king, then your political leader is not. No matter what he promises to do for you or for your moral cause or what he does to threaten the people who you do not like. You see, elites, secular and religious, then and now, they have the most to lose from Jesus' claim that he alone is Lord. And so they go out hoping to catch Jesus in a trap. They ask him a question, and he ends up trapping them in a question of his own. Was John's baptism of divine or human origin? And the thing is, they know what they think. They think John was just some crazy guy out in the desert. Because if they didn't think that, then Everything that John did pointed to Jesus as the Messiah, and they would have to repent, but they're not doing that. But they also know where the tide of public opinion is going, see, because everyone liked John. Everyone thought that he was the real deal. And so they're kind of caught there like a, a candidate in a year of election, keeping their options open. Which way is the wind blowing? 
And so Jesus says effectively, look, if you guys cannot be honest with yourselves, you will never be able to be honest about me. And I think we all know what that's like on some level. Most people, you and I, your neighbors, your coworkers, not everyone, but most people, like, we, we don't have a problem with Jesus as a teacher, right? Or even as his teachings as they exist in the popular imagination. And we want to kind of reduce it down to, like, you know, love each other and be groovy, you know, and all that. Like, just chill. Jesus is a teacher. We're, we're, we're good with that. We think he had some good things to say. Uh, Jesus is a moral example. We're great with that. The good works, the, the ethic of love, the self-sacrificial service, practice of forgiveness, his being with and giving dignity and honor and, and recognizing the inherent dignity of the poor and the outcast. Down with that. All that stuff is great. It's Jesus as an authority that gives us pause. See, as long as Jesus' teachings and his claim don't have any bearing on my life or on me personally, as long as they don't press into my life and my autonomy, look, whether you believe in Jesus as Lord or, or not, if I can just take what I like from him, all is good. If Jesus can help me become more humane or more compassionate or can help me get a promotion or maybe help me marry up, whatever it is. Awesome. I'm on the team if he can do all that stuff for me. But when Jesus' authority starts to press into my own sovereignty, my own thinking, my own action in the world, when who he is means something about who I am and what I do and how I work and where I work, and who I date, and how I spend my money, and how I treat people. What do I do with that Jesus? Because we all like the Jesus we can grab and pull in a bit here, a bit there, who helps me become a better person. But what about the Jesus who has a claim over me? Well, all the confrontations in the gospel have been building toward this very precarious point. Will the, G will the, will the leaders accept Jesus for who he is and accept his authority? Or will they reject it in favor of their own? So Jesus, kind of seeing things where they are, he decides to just give it a little bit of a push. And he does it by telling a story about a vineyard owner and his servants. And I imagine his disciples who heard him start were hoping, oh, thank God, it's a story. This is going to ease some of the tension here. And just when you think the story is going to break, right? Just when you think, like, it can't get any worse than this. It's got to take a turn for the better. No, it just keeps going from one heartbreak to one heartbreak to one heartbreak. There's no downshifting to make a softer reception. Jesus is just straight gunning it. And his meaning is super clear. Like he, all throughout Mark's gospel, when the disciples don't understand a parable, he goes back to the house and, and tells them what he means by it. Everybody knew what, exactly what Jesus means by it. Everybody knew exactly what he was doing here. And partly this is because Jesus is treading on some familiar territory. There's this image of a vineyard that pops up in Isaiah chapter 5 where the, the prophet writes a poem. He actually calls it a love song. I, I don't know if any of you have ever written a love song to somebody. Uh, if you did, tell me how it went. I'd love to know. I have tried. I am terrible at it. I, I found this out the hard way. Part of, I was... I was a mess when I was in college. Like, I was emo before, like, it was a thing. I, I was primo, if you will. I'm sorry. I'm, so, I'm sorry for that. 
This is what happens when I go off script. It's not, it's not, it's not good. It's not good. But I remember like, oh man, I remember this one song I, was, I wrote and it was like, I don't use words like love because love can't hold my pain. <laughs> Toenail polish, everything. I was, I was something. Anyway, that's what Isaiah is up to. Like <laughs> saying, hey, God has written you all a love song. And they're thinking, how nice. How does it go? What's it called? Love hurts. <laughs> You're like, dude, that sounds rough. I thought you said it was a love song. It goes on. It's about God planting a Israel like a vineyard and then watching over it, tending the soil, hoping for a good crop, only to find that all the grapes are rotten and it's gone bad despite all of the care and love and time poured into it. All that's left is judgment. Do you like my song? It's Jesus' way of saying, hey, look, you think that episode in the temple was bad. Just wait for what God's got coming for you. And Jesus' parable, he goes, it's only a slight variation on the theme. Israel is still the vineyard tasked with bearing fruit for the joy of the world. The owner of the vineyard is still God. The tenants who are now in charge are the Judean authorities whose hostility and defective stewardship Jesus is actively calling out. The, the servants who were sent to collect the owner's share are the prophets who were sent by God who get no better of reception then than Jesus is getting now. Uh, and they keep, they keep getting, getting beaten or, or ignored much as they did to John. And so the only thing that this landowner has received from his vintage is, is mockery and insult and death. Love hurts. But see, he's got one more, one more card up his sleeve, and so he decides, I'm going to send my beloved son, saying, surely they will respect him. And he does this knowing full well that they will not. And so Jesus is here just plainly setting up the religious leaders for condemnation, stepping into their house and telling them what's coming to them. But he's saying, look, the son of God has stepped into your vineyard. I own all of this. I am the one with authority. And you guys are standing at the crossroads where the only two options you've got are offense or faith. Which one are you going to pick? I know that you're going to choose offense and you are going to kill me. To which their response is, what did you say? That is offensive. We are going to kill you. And yet even here, the son is sent out of compassion because if they choose faith, they will find a God who is gracious and compassionate. So on the whole, kind of stepping back, this is a story of rejection by unbelief, only it's told from God's point of view. And the one thing that we are meant to see, or, or at least one thing that we are meant to see, is that this long-suffering pursuit of God, he just keeps sending. And what the religious leaders can't see is that the one before them is the authentic thing, and so they reject him in favor of doing their own thing. And that's the crossroad that is always in front of us as well. The vineyard in the parable is God's possession. And so this is what it means for us and how we fit into the bigger story. You see, because in the world of the story, there are only two types of tenants. Those who reject the landowner and those who inherit the vineyard. 
And Jesus forces this confrontation. Which one are you going to become? Are you going to trust Jesus and his authority and, and trust his read on reality, take on his mental maps of the world about how you should live and move and have your being in it? Or are you going to find all kinds of reasons to ignore him or reject him when his authority presses in? And whether you do that by taking a part of your life, be that your work or your, your relationships, your identity, your politics, your, your marriage, and elevating that one thing and then asking it to bear all of the weight of your significance, magnifying everything in your life through, through that one lens in order to prove your own importance to invite other people to affirm your tenuous sense of self or whether it's just trying to meet all of your own deep needs out of your very finite resources. All of that is just a way of becoming God-like without actually having to ever deal with God. But the thing is, any search for meaning has to deal with Jesus at some point. Because either he is like some thumbtacked old painting thrown up on a wall that maybe some people have built some elaborate frame around and, and maybe it's got some sentimental value, but at the end, it's only what you make of it. Or he is a discarded treasure, the authentic thing that carries the full weight of authority. See, because he is the only prophet, shaman, mystic, or philosopher ever to claim not just to point to the meaning of life, but to be the meaning itself. And maybe the most controversial claim of authority he makes is the one from John's gospel where he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. I, I am the meaning that makes sense of this complex world. I am the direction that gives you coherent purpose in it. I am the life of joy and contentment that wells up from within you and fills you up. And, and the best part of that is that when all this gets expressed not just in a simple phrase but over the course of a lifetime uh, over the course of events and in relationships the way that that authority bears itself out in the world looks an awful lot like love L like the purest most undemanding form of love that the world has ever known see because for Jesus love wasn't just some enlightened moment of prepared and inspired teaching it was how he went about his day-to-day -day life. He opened up his table to those without reputation. He, he stopped and he allowed himself to be interrupted. And he did it with those who, who everyone else had disregarded. He chose to offer himself to the weak who could not possibly repay him. But it also wasn't just the oppressed that he loved because he loved the oppressors back into rehabilitation. His was the kind of love that would invite a tax collector into his inner circle. That would take a private meeting from, with a priest from the group that later would conspire to kill him. The kind that would, as they beat his body, as they nailed him to a cross, would pray for those who pierced and broke him. It was the kind of love that would go into a vineyard knowing that everyone who had gone before had been rejected and killed. So this love, it is not flimsy or sentimental. It comes with authority. Because he also walked around saying things like, you are forgiven. And then people who heard that walked around and experienced life as though that were true. Like, like he actually did have the authority to forgive. 
He commanded illness to depart and those who were under the weight of spiritual oppression, he told them to come back to reality and they did. And he even grants pardon like before God. And, and yes, it makes the priests upset and all that stuff, but then the people who are pardoned get to experience freedom. You see, any honest look at the life of Jesus will either make your jaw hit the floor or it'll make you mad. There's not a whole lot of room in between. Soren Kierkegaard put it best when he wrote this. The possibility of offense is the crossroad. Or it's like standing at the crossroad. From the possibility of offense, one either turns to offense or to faith, but one never comes to faith except from the possibility of offense. In the end, the choice is to accept the gift right in front of you or not. It's to see the authentic thing for what it really is and then to trust Jesus and his way of reading reality and to trust that all he wants is your trust. He, he, he wants to give the vineyard away to those who are ready to work the soil to bring out the best fruit for the joy of the world. It is an invitation to breathe in the very life of God, to, to practice the resurrected life in the here and now, to be with him and join with him until every square inch of earth is covered with a vineyard bursting forth with fruit. And so the choice is yours. Let us pray. Almighty God, we come to your table now because we long to be as close to you as, van as, as vines are to the branches. And God, we ask that we would also submit to the authority of the vine dresser who prunes the branches so that they will bear even more fruit. And God, we ask that may the fruits that comes from this table be expressed in this community the joy of the world. It's in your name we pray. Amen.